0: Hello there, little masters, and welcome once again to the Prancing Pony Podcast, where today, here in the common room, we are off on an adventure with a wizard of Tolkien scholarship. West u my friends.
1: I'm Sean Marchese, the real-life Lord of the Mark, and I'm here with the man of the West, the Alf
0: to my Smith, Alan Sisto. Oh, oh, I like that one, sir. That's much better than, what was it the last time, the knob to your bob or whatever? Some, something Just far less work. flattering. Well, you far had the first two flattering. letters locked
1: down on this one, so it was <laughs> It was, <laughs> it was easy. easy.
0: It was easy. Folks, today we are very excited to be welcoming Professor Verlin Flieger to the podcast. Dr. Flieger is Professor Emerita in the Department of English at the University of Maryland, College Park, and a living legend among Tolkien scholars. She's the author of a bunch of critical books on on Tolkien's work, the co-editor of the annual Tolkien Studies Journal, and she has edited several of Tolkien's own stories and essays for publication, some of which we'll talk about today. I should also add one more thing. She has the patience of a saint. This is actually our <laughs> second attempt at this interview, but we were stymied by some technical issues last time. As does sometimes
1: happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, I should also add, Alan, she's also a fantasy novelist. And right. she has so far been an absolutely wonderful person to talk to. Absolutely. And, and I can't wait to, to get right into it. Uh, we're mm-hmm. so thrilled to have her here today. So, Dr. Verlin Klieger, let me be the first to say welcome to the Prancing Pony podcast.
2: Thank you. And hello.
1: Welcome. welcome, Hello, welcome, welcome and thank you for joining us. Yes. And we will go ahead and just start right into the questions here. Best place to start. Right at the beginning, that's right. Absolutely. And we always like to start with a little getting to know you questions. So uh, would you mind telling us when and how you first discovered Tolkien's work? And at what point did you start approaching his work as a scholar, as opposed to just being a fan?
2: Uh, That is a story often told. I first read The Lord of the Rings in, I think it was the winter of 1956, 1957. Anyway, it had just come out in England, and I was working at the Folger Shakespeare Library with a woman who was British and had been sent this wonderful novel by her brother, who was still living in the UK. Uh, It was a remarkable experience and one that you cannot have anymore mm-hmm. because we didn't mm-hmm. know what we were reading. Nobody had mm-hmm. ever heard of Tolkien. Yeah. The book had no uh, critical background to it. It just hit us like a ton of bricks. Um, mm. So that was my no first experience. Yeah. No expectations. None at baggage. all. And I was blown away. Yeah. Now, when I started thinking about looking at it from a critical or scholarly point of view was when my eight-year-old son had poison ivy. Mm. Because mm. at that time, his face was swollen to the size of a soccer ball, and he oh, couldn't goodness. read, he couldn't play, he couldn't watch television, he couldn't do anything. Mm. And in a desperate attempt to keep him amused, I reached for a book, opened it up, and began the first sentence when Mr. Bilbo Baggins, a Bag <laughs> End Hobbiton, decided Jesus. to celebrate his 11th birthday. And we were off. Yeah. I re re-read wow the whole book to my oh. older son and to my two younger kids at the same time. And they loved it. And I was in graduate school and teaching um, sort of teaching assistant type lower division courses. And I thought, you know, this was the '70s. These mm-hmm. students would love a course in fantasy. Maybe mm-hmm. I could sneak mm-hmm. in. The Lord of the Rings. So I did. And <laughs> nice. I did. Yeah. And that's how I got started.
0: Wow. That's wow. wonderful. Those students were more fortunate than they might possibly have. Known. I know. I know. <laughs> oh, you know, can you imagine, Sean? I, at, oh, back in the at, 70s, I was you know an undergrad and I took a, a class from, uh, oh, I don't know, what was her name again? Dr. Flieger, <laughs> I think it was. And uh, on yeah. Lord of the Rings. <laughs> what an amazing. How amazing tale. that would have been.
1: I remember oh, how hard there there might have been one fantasy course offered at my school when I was in mm-hmm. undergrad in the 90s and uh yeah. You know, now I suppose such such things are a little bit more common but at the time it it had to just be um oh, groundbreaking. groundbreaking. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. That and, and thank you for all you did to to get it out there into the, you know, the scholarly sphere. Yeah, you really kickstarted that.
2: Believe me, it was fun.
0: <laughs> <laughs> As it should be. As it should be. Uh, speaking of fun, we understand you recently returned from Oxford, where you attended the opening of the exhibition at the Bodleian Libraries, Tolkien, Maker of Middle-Earth. And you got to take part in a panel discussion with, uh, well, with one of our earlier guests, Dimitra Femi. For the sake of all the folks listening who wish they could have been there, and that definitely includes us, tell oh, yeah. us a lo- about that experience, both about the exhibit itself and about the panel discussion a little bit.
2: The exhibit is wonderful. It brings together so much material. It's the collaboration of the two major repositories of Tolkien archives, um, Mm -hmm. the Bodleian Library, which has most of the stuff, and Marquette University Library, which uh, was fortunate enough to buy at a bargain price the Mm -hmm. manuscript of The Lord of the Rings many, Mm -hmm. many years ago. So they have um, The Hobbit, The Lord of the Rings, a number of letters, and the two libraries have exchanged copies with each other and cooperated, Mm. particularly in this exhibit, which is therefore a mine of material. Mm. Everything Mm. from Tolkien's chair, contributed Mm. by Mm. his daughter Priscilla Tolkien, a collection of his pipes, a number Mm. of early letters which are deeply moving, the original... Handwritten copy by Tolkien's wife, Edith, of the Book of Lost Tales. Wow. Wow. All the early paintings that were illustrations of The Hobbit. Tolkien's notes and jottings. Things like Hobbit measures, how many Hobbit toes equal a foot. (laughs) Uh, Wow. Just an extraordinary range of materials.
0: Mm. My goodness. That sounds incredible. It's something we've encouraged our, our listeners to try to attend. Of course, we're, we're looking at possibly attending ourselves when it comes to the United States, um, I believe, early next year.
2: To the Morgan Library. Yes,
0: to the Morgan Library. Thank you. Well, it's York. a
2: lovely experience, not just because you see all these wonderful things, but because you're among friends. Everybody yes. is mm-hmm. there because they've <laughs> read the same book that you have read.
1: Yeah, that is and true.
2: Everybody is talking to everybody else exchanging opinions, making friends, it's, um, hmm. it's a really special experience, I would say.
0: I bet it is. That, I, that, I don't that, doubt yeah. it.
1: I mean, that has been one of our experiences, just doing this podcast and connecting with Tolkien fans all over the world.
0: Yeah, the Tolkien um, community is amazing. It truly it, is. It really is. It really is. And, and everywhere you go, you're among friends.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, tell us a little bit, if you will, about that panel discussion that you were on. Uh, I know you got to be a part of that, and we'd love to hear about it.
2: That was um, several days after the opening of the exhibit um, Mm -hmm. on, I think, Tuesday, the 5th of June. And it was a panel uh, organized by the Bodleian, uh, including Dame Marina Warner, who has published Mm -hmm. a number of books on mythology. Dimitra Femi, who's been on your podcast, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and myself. Marina Warner was there to talk about myth in general. She's not a Tolkien scholar, but she is certainly a myth scholar. Dimitra Femi was there because she has published on Tolkien and fairy stories. And she yes. is kind of a mm-hmm. specialist in that very specialized area. And I was sort of the one in the middle uh, talking about <laughs> Tolkien himself. Oh, wow. And Myth and Language, which is my baby.
0: Yes. Mm -hmm. As anybody who's read your works would quickly discover. (laughs) Absolutely.
2: Well, we had some interesting questions. Well, it was a self-selected audience, as you might suppose. Everybody was there because they had read the same book and they had read it multiple times and they all had opinions about it that they wanted (laughs) to share. So the questions (laughs) were... Very good, very to the point. The exchanges were very lively. Um, there wasn't always agreement, but that led to discussion, and that was interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. So I'd say we had a very good time. I believe that the Bodleian is going to have a podcast oh, good. of that oh, great! I haven't heard we'll any available. more details about it, uh, and I've looked it up and can't find it on their website, but I believe it is coming. Good.
0: That's good. Oh, that's hear. great well, to know. We'll have to look when it for releases. That. We'll have to want we'll to promote that from our page as yeah. well and link to it and all that. Absolutely. That'd be great. Great. Well,
1: I, on that note, I, I think let's go ahead and talk about some of your written work. Uh, and I want to start with your latest book, which is a collection of essays titled, There Would Always Be a Fairy Tale. Um, in the introduction to that book, you wrote um, that well, I guess I should back up and say that the book is just a collection of essays on a variety of topics. But in the introduction, you said that as you were putting those essays together, uh, a more coherent picture than you'd anticipated began to emerge of Tolkien. And you describe Tolkien as, and I love this phrase, uh, a man as complicated as the books that bear his name. Mm. And, oh, and, I, and I love that <laughs> phrase. I, I know you focused on uh, this aspect of Tolkien in many of your works before. Um, going back to Splintered Light, I know you started Splintered Light with a reference to Humphrey Carpenter's biography and that description of Tolkien as a man of antitheses. Mm-hmm. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about Tolkien the man and uh, these complications, these antitheses, and why is it important for us as readers to know about them?
2: Mm. Ooh, where to start? Um, first, Let me begin with a qualification. I really am not um, qualified to talk about Tolkien, the man. I never met him. I wish I had. Um, I feel that I know him, but of course Mm. I don't. Mm -hmm. I can talk about his work Mm. and what his works seem to have said to me, and I see them as um, being produced out of the tension between um, the antitheses that Carpenter talks about, um, that he was a jolly fellow who loved um, conversation, was very convivial, liked jokes, Mm -hmm. um, (laughs) and the sort of dark side, probably deriving from his early childhood when he was orphaned. Um, Yeah. Yeah in which he felt that nothing really good would ever last. Yeah. And if you look carefully at the Lord of the Rings, you will find any number of sort of almost asides that characters uh, are wont to say about whether things will last. Theoden says it. Gandalf Mm -hmm. says it. Maybe maybe much that is beautiful will pass forever.
1: Yeah, right.
2: Out of Middle-earth. And, and that, was, that was, for me, the bottom line with Tolkien. It's beautiful. Mm. It's precious. Good word. It's not going yeah. to last.
1: Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The, a little bit of that idea of the, the long defeat. Yes. Yeah. That, yes. Uh, that Galadriel talks about. Yes. That we can defeat evil for today, but we're still fighting the long defeat.
2: Yeah. And always will, as long as we live in what Tolkien knew as a fallen world. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's never going to be perfect. We can try and try, and we must, and that's mm-hmm. what the that's what the Lord of the Rings is for me. Is everybody trying yeah. so hard?
0: Hmm. Indeed. Absolutely. Artemard. until the end of that, and I'm I'm sure that's like you said stems from real world experiences in in what is also a, a fallen world.
2: Uh, well, but yeah. he also he also had a great capacity. For enjoyment mm-hmm. that comes out of his darker knowledge that nothing is going to last, you better enjoy it while you better can. enjoy it.
0: <laughs> and yeah. that's, what, yeah. that's
2: what the hobbits do. They like hot baths. Yeah. They like mushrooms. They like mm-hmm. bread and cheese. They like beer. They like songs. They like comradeship.
0: Mm-hmm. Enjoying life. Uh, yeah, yeah, the simple pleasures, the truly yeah. simple pleasures in many ways, the ones that, that we would all do, all do better to enjoy more of and more frequent.
2: if we had a chance take it while you can
0: mm-hmm. absolutely it's like like
1: thorin says to bilbo on his deathbed oh yeah
2: oh yeah, if more true. of us valued what mm-hmm. is it
0: yeah um,
2: food and cheer
0: and cheer, cheer over, over gold. hoarded gold, gold. gold. Yeah. yeah 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 that was a a really poignant moment yes i love that yeah truly is. i really
2: can't think of it without crying yeah or read it to my kids
0: yeah yeah. yeah, we, oh yeah we recently read that in the, the podcast. Read, I got the, the privilege of reading that. By that, I mean, I beat Sean over the head until he let me take that passage. <laughs> and it was hard to get through it without tears. And I practiced. There, there was an exchange of, of passages. There was a little <laughs> hostage exchange. <laughs> yeah. I'll give, I'll give Sean more poetry. He lets me take more of those character moments. Yeah.
2: <laughs> well, it is hard to get through. And that's because it's you know, spot on.
0: It that's is. what it is. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. It is it touches at the very core. I mean it it just yes. drills down deep past all of those layers and you realize that it, there's such truth in that and yeah we have to recognize it before we're on our deathbed if we're going to enjoy what well, life you has to better. offer. better. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, on the the topic of antitheses, there's a, an essay in the collection called You Catastrophe in the Dark in which uh, you explain that when you teach Tolkien to college students you always do th- do so through the lens of of two essays on fairy stories, which uh, you know we've used as well, and Beowulf, the monsters, and the critics. Now, you've called these two essays in a, in a couple of places the keys to the mythology. It's also the early foundation splintered light, which we'll be getting to in a little bit, but a lot of our readers definitely can understand that applicability of on fairy stories certainly our listeners can we've talked about it a lot our whole first episode was on it mm-hmm. all the way back to the beginning exactly and i please don't listen to it now it's embarrassing we, we were still <laughs> we were still getting our we feet a under little rough us, but, we were just starting out but uh, uh, you know it, the content was there but i suspect the beowulf essay is not as widely read uh, and i you know plead guilty to not bringing that in mm-hmm. here yet at least not yet Now, maybe people think they need to have a firmer grasp of Beowulf itself, or maybe they just don't understand the applicability. But what are those readers, and and maybe even us as hosts, missing out on by not spending more time with the monsters and the critics? Ooh. (laughs) We don't ask the easy (laughs) questions, do we? (laughs) You're missing
2: out on a lot. Uh, Of course, many, many people have not read Beowulf. Nobody picks it up in the library just for fun. You have to take a course. Uh, mm-hmm. You have practically mm-hmm. have to be in graduate school and uh, and trying <laughs> to translate. Yeah. Um, yeah,
0: yeah. But
2: it is it is the bedrock of Tolkien's way of looking at things, as well as mm. the bedrock of Beowulf scholarship, because it really changed the whole field when mm. it was first published. Ideally, you should. Well, I can't say read Beowulf, but if you could. You should read the essay. Yeah. Then you should read Beowulf. Then you should read the mm-hmm. essay again. And then you should read Beowulf again. And then you should read The Lord of the Rings.
0: There you mm-hmm. go. Now
2: that's a tall assignment.
0: <laughs> it is. Um, Sean, how do you think that's, we're going to fit a that fun, into fun. That's
1: a fun summer read.
2: <laughs> right. Take it to the beach.
0: I was going to say, how are we going to fit that into season three? Do we start? Folks, I know you're expecting us to start with Fellowship of the Ring, but we're going to start with Beowulf. I think we (laughs) might just have to do that.
2: (laughs) Well, I used to say to my classes, if I could only, my classes on Tolkien, if I could only teach one book in this course, Hmm. it would be Beowulf. Wow. Because if I did it right and you got it, you could read The Lord of the Rings on your own.
0: Hmm. hmm. We might, wow. end, yeah. Mm.
2: Because Beowulf is about a man who tried and failed. Yes. And that is what the mm. Lord of the Rings is about.
1: Hmm. Mm. That's an that's an off, often yeah. overlooked point about Frodo is the yeah. fact that he failed in his quest. Yeah.
2: Yes, and that's that was for Tolkien so important. Yeah. Um, because of course he had to. It's set up that way. Mm-hmm. You can't possibly. Give Up the ring. Right. And as readers, we are told that almost from the very first page, certainly from the second mm-hmm. chapter. You yeah, cannot,
1: yeah. when, Gan- the give when away Gandalf the tells them, you, you can't give away the ring. Yeah. Yeah. It can't be, it, or you can, and oh, how did he say it? You, can, you cannot be made to give it up except by force. Yeah.
2: And it would, would break, break your mind.
1: Yeah. Which would break your mind. Yeah. But
2: you read yeah. the whole book and mm. you go along with Frodo and you're going to Mount Doom and we're going to throw away the ring. Mm -hmm. And then when you get there and that awful, awful moment happens, Mm -hmm. you can't believe it. Now, that's, again, difficult to do in these days when everybody knows the books and the movies. Um, Right. But I have to tell you, when that first happened to me in 1956, I was Hmm. devastated.
1: Yeah. Wow.
2: And then you get... The fairy story essay aspect yeah. with the you catastrophe, mm-hmm. in which mm-hmm. bang on top of that dreadful moment when Frodo falls, in comes Gollum, bites off his finger, mm-hmm. falls into the pit with the ring, and Frodo is healed, and the world is saved. How? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, you know,
1: wow, that's it
2: takes some kind of writing to be able to do that. Tolkien was crying when he wrote it
0: yeah yeah well the catastrophe when it when that turn comes it, it will bring tears that's one of the things he talks about in on fairy stories is
1: yeah
0: yeah is that that it's such a powerful emotional moment and it resonates with us so deeply that mm-hmm. don't be surprised to find that happening and i know it, it happens even even now after how many dozens of reads those certain moments that moment uh there are other moments i think when when Amir turns and sees the, the black sails turn. Yeah. They, they become the sails from, yeah. of the King of Gondor. And uh, even just now talking about it, I'm getting goosebumps <laughs> all up and down or the, my whole or the co- body. Or the cock crow.
1: Oh, oh my goodness.
0: Oh, oh, yeah. I cannot wait for those moments. But yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Well, it, and you're right. Those have more potency when they're viewed in the context or as of that antithesis between the dark and the catastrophe. between that. That knowledge mm-hmm. that you're going to lose, but then the knowledge that there can be a eucatastrophe. Yeah. yeah. Well, and, and Tolkien
1: even says that, that you, you need the threat of discatastrophe oh, yeah. for the eucatastrophe to have meaning. It has to always be there, yeah. Well, yeah. you've
2: got to have dark in order to appreciate light.
1: Mm-hmm. Right. Which as we'll talk more about as, about as you said <laughs> quite well <laughs> in the very beginning of Splendid Light, yeah. Yeah. And, yeah.
2: And you've got to have light in order to fully grasp the meaning of dark.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well,
2: I mean, these are such simple things, you know. You yeah, say that, and you sort of think, "Duh." Straightforward you know, concept. It's <laughs> um, but it's it's those basics that uh, that underpin a lot of what we think and read.
0: That's certainly true.
1: And it's when you think of how well Tolkien weaves that into the story. Yeah. I mean, yeah, as, as you funny. just said, Dr. Flieger, the idea that Tolkien does tell us right there in Chapter Two of Book One that. Frodo is not going to be able to give up the ring. And yet we go on that entire journey with him. And we, we hope all along that, that things are going to turn out just fine. And, and we're surprised all the twists when he does yeah. Right. We are shocked when he doesn't. Yeah.
2: I think I did more than hope. I think I expected.
1: Yeah. Right. Uh, you know, Because we've, we've all of, read books before. Yeah.
2: Right. Yeah. He, he lured me along. <laughs>
0: uh, you know, yeah.
2: he flim me. He conned me,
0: uh, <laughs> but masterfully. <laughs> and then, and then he pulls
2: the rug out from under you, and you fall flat.
0: Yeah, yeah. And then the U catastrophe and it's comes, devastating. which is why it's so
2: yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. That's why the U catastrophe becomes so much more, so much more potent. And I think it's an act of mercy
1: that, that the U catastrophe comes so quickly on the heels of that moment of failure, because otherwise it would That's just be true. devastating. <laughs> yes, true. I think But right. it's only devastating for a few paragraphs.
2: Yep, you couldn't take it. You couldn't take it for anything more. It's too intense.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You are right. Well, moving on, if I can ask one more question about the new book, uh, there's an essay in there that I, I've really been looking forward to talking to you about because uh, this is the essay called But What Did He Really Mean? <laughs> and in that essay, <laughs> yeah. you focus on the letters and specifically the, the fact which I don't think a lot of people are aware of or are or, or consciously thinking of, the fact that Tolkien tailored his letters for the people to whom he was writing.
0: Now, as we a, all do. As we all as, do, of course. As we all do, that's true. And yeah. <laughs> Just nobody puts together a book of all the emails I've ever sent, thank goodness.
1: <laughs> right. You don't you don't get to line them up next to each other no. and compare the compare <laughs> notes. But uh we've we've had a, several guests on the show now, and a few of them I'm I'm thinking what, Alan? I know John Garth, John Garth, and, I think Garth and Michael Drought. Uh,
0: yeah. I was actually just re-listening to the interview with, with Professor Drought, and I just heard him say that exact thing.
1: <laughs> yeah. They they both mentioned this idea to us, and they and they gave the credit to you, Dr. Flieger. So mm-hmm. that's why we've been looking forward to talking to you about this. But basically, in a nutshell, your essay sort of warns us about the possibility of, uh, or potential, I should say, for cherry-picking those letters. Um, you can basically cherry-pick those letters for statements that support pretty much any belief or intention we want to ascribe to Tolkien. Mm-hmm. So... My question for you about that is, in light of that, with, you know, with that warning in mind, uh, are the letters still valuable as a resource for study? And if so, how can we, how can we use them more wisely?
2: Oh, hmm. yes, the letters are not just still valuable. They're, um, they're unique. It's really mm-hmm. all we have mm. of Tolkien in his own voice. Uh, yeah. you know, there's yeah. lots and lots of lecture notes still in the Bodleian, uh, but those are notes. They're not direct statements. And the letters are Tolkien on Tolkien.
0: Mm. Yeah.
2: Uh, and you can't do better than that. <laughs> uh, but I do think they have to be read with um, with as much awareness as you can bring to them that he's talking to particular people. And we don't have the letters he's responding
0: to. Mm, That's a very good point.
2: Uh, So we're getting one half of the story. I think the only thing you can do with that knowledge is be very cautious about um, what you choose to take as um, the final word Mm. on just about anything. I mean, when Tolkien makes a declarative statement like, Frodo failed, mm-hmm. two words. Um, that's from the horse's mouth. You can, yeah. you can
0: mm-hmm.
2: put your money on that. <laughs> but it's when good. he says, as he did to um, a correspondent who compared Galadriel to the Virgin Mary,
1: right, yeah.
2: his reply was, oh, other people have pointed that out to me. And of course, the Virgin Mary uh, means a great deal to me as a Catholic. But he never says, "Yeah, you're right." Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, he he kind of dances around it in a way yeah. that is encouraging and diplomatic.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, because the recipient of that letter was uh, Father Robert Murray, right?
2: Ah, uh, no, no. This was another. This was another reader. Oh, okay. Um, and I can't remember her name now. I think it was a woman, but I'm not sure. But you got to remember also that he did know Robert Murray and know him well. Yeah. But in right. many of these letters, he's writing to complete strangers.
0: That's true. Yeah.
2: People he has never met and probably never will meet. So you have to you have to be very careful with your words.
0: Maybe a little more of an arm's length conversation, as any
2: politician will tell you. <laughs>
0: <laughs> right. Yes.
1: Absolutely. And I think you mentioned in the essay that you know he he just didn't he didn't want to get into um, a theological argument with people. No. Right. No. So he just sort of uh, tiptoes around the issues. You say
2: I don't think he did. Um, I think he wanted his story to have its own impact. Yeah. And uh, and he mm-hmm. certainly didn't want to get into esoteric debate.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I'm grateful for that. I, I think that would have. I'm not sure it would have tainted the work per se, but I think it would have made people read it differently. And and I think it's best that it stands on its own and, and, uh, and people are able to form their own responses without Mm -hmm. being shoehorned into, you know, how it has to fit this particular way or, you know,
2: that hasn't stopped people.
0: No, it has not stopped people. You're right. And You know, we all have
2: our own Tolkien, uh, who is, who, is made in our image, in a sense, because we bring ourselves to everything we read. Yeah, that's Uh, true. So uh, it's easy to see how the other guy has got it wrong. Um, But you have to be very careful (laughs) to remember that you're talking from your perspective.
1: Yeah, right. That's true. Yeah. And it is very interesting that given how much Tolkien wanted his work to stand on its own and how – how often he, um, he attempted to, to say, oh, you know, my biography isn't important to, mm-hmm. um, to understanding my story. Um, and yet, paradoxically, we all spend so much time <laughs> learning about it because it, is, it still <laughs> does manage to enrich the reading. Yes, um, it does. I guess it's just, it's just being careful about how you use it. I guess that's really the message. Yeah.
2: Yeah, and we should do that with all authors. We should do it with J.D. Salinger. Mm-hmm. Or,
0: that's true. Or mm-hmm. Ernest
2: Hemingway. Well, it's awful hard with Hemingway.
0: Yeah, that's true. To
2: divide his yeah, love from right. his work, but we should try.
1: Yeah, quite. Because he wrote himself into his work so much. Yeah. yeah. As, as all authors do, I guess,
0: but yeah. maybe Hemingway more uh, more consciously. And more, yeah, and more intentionally, I suspect. But Well, I want to shift gears just a little bit uh, and spend a, a chunk of time here on Splintered Light, which I just finished another read-through of it, and I'm blown away as I, as I was the first time. <laughs> uh, we've talked about this book often, but frankly, not often enough on the show. And it's been really key to our understanding of the Legendarium. So on a personal note, thank you. I, w- I would echo that. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. The um, the first edition, of course, came out back in 1983. It must have been one of the first, if not the first uh, book, which focused primarily on The Silmarillion since it had only been published uh, six years earlier in 1977. I'm curious... What first attracted you to the Silmarillion as a subject for closer study, and then how did you realize, and of course you were correct, that there was so (laughs) much to be discovered there at a time when a lot of readers and critics, uh, and I think you point that out in the introduction, were still really unsure what to make of it because it was so radically different from The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings.
2: So you're asking me what attracted me to the Silmarillion. Yeah, what attracted right?
0: you, and then, okay. and then what made you realize the volume of information there to be discovered when it seemed like nobody else really had a handle on the book because it was so different from the other works?
2: Well, what attracted me was the fact that it got published. <laughs> I mean, we were all waiting to see if there was anything more by Tolkien. I think yeah. the Silmarillion was on the New York Times Bestseller list for something like—I'm going to get this wrong—but something like fifty weeks.
1: Oh my a goodness! Long, long here. time. Wow! It
2: also shows up more than any other book I have ever tracked in secondhand bookstores hmm. oh. because so many people huh. bought it, started to read it, found out it wasn't about hobbits,
0: about hobbits, and, yeah.
2: uh, <laughs> and gave it to the goodwill. Right.
0: <laughs> um, <laughs> My goodness, what they missed out on. And
2: I was fascinated (laughs) because it suddenly um, put a sort of long-distance lens on The Lord of the Rings, and I could see it in a much deeper perspective. Mm. Uh, That scene at Weathertop, where Aragorn says, I'm going to give you a little bit of this verse, you know, it's in translation, Mm -hmm. but Here's the story. And then he starts talking about Baron and Luthien and the tale of Tenuvial, mm-hmm. And in 1956, who knew? Yeah. For all I knew. That was
1: all you had at the time. Beren yeah. and Luthien
2: yeah. was something Strider had made up on the spot. And then you realize <laughs> that it is the foundation story yeah. for the yeah. whole mm-hmm. mythology. And everything sort of reorients itself. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, And you've got a bigger book, a richer book, a deeper book, um, Mm -hmm. a book with its own history. A lot of Tolkien wannabes have written trilogies. The Lord of the Rings is not one. um, In imitation of what they thought Tolkien was doing. You know, you get a magic artifact, you get a couple of words in italic, um, you get a journey, (laughs) you get a map, you got it made. And I could <laughs> name you some books yeah. that, ah, uh, the
0: that, <laughs> right. that go a long yep. way
2: on that. But yeah, yeah. all those, all that paraphernalia was, in a sense, generated on the spot. Whereas Tolkien's Silmarillion mythology had been going since 1917.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: So he had it there, uh, ready to hand. Amazing. And of course, he also wanted to sneak in as much of it as he could because he didn't think it would ever get published.
1: Yeah. Right. I I can't imagine what that must have felt like for him to to spend his entire life working on it and and not know if it would ever get published. Well,
2: there's where where C.S. Lewis came in handy because Lewis believed in it. Mm. It was Tolkien's publisher's. Mm. Who told him it was unpublishable. <laughs> <Right.
1: shovel>. Yeah. <laughs> when he sent it in and they said, what exactly is this? Yeah. What
0: is this? I, there, I can't <laughs> find any hobbits. I'm still looking. There aren't any. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. You know, it, it. before, I know Sean's got another question to follow up, but it. this made me think of a concept that Professor Drought talked to us about when we had him on back in, I think it was December. Uh, and that was the idea of textual ruins. Yeah. Uh, this notion that, you know, these, these beautiful pieces of history where you don't have any other... Context or placement. So things like mm-hmm. that tale of Baron and Luthian at, at the top of Weathertop, or or one of my favorite moments when uh, Theoden charging down with the Rohirrim is compared to Orome. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Until Airendo, 1977. A song about.
0: Yeah, yeah, the, Bilbo's I song the whole old Bilbo's song.
1: And, and Aragorn gives him grief for singing it, yeah.
0: Yeah, uh, well, if you have the cheek to sing a song about Erendil <laughs> in Elrond's house.
1: And you have no idea what that means yeah, until they're later just, on They're, you they're just textual yeah.
0: ruins at that point, and they enrich the story. But then when you find out the real story, it makes it even more amazing. And it just, it just makes your hunger for all of those other textual ruins uh, come even become even richer and become even fuller. You you start to read no matter what little bits and pieces in the Silmarillion, there are a bunch of them too. And you want to know more.
2: (laughs) Well, you know what?
0: Mm -hmm.
2: Beowulf is full of that kind of thing. Yeah. Beowulf Mm -hmm. is full of ruins, textual ruins. Yeah. uh, Other stories that get alluded to names that get dropped.
1: uh, Yeah.
2: As if you're Mm -hmm. supposed to know who this is and of course no no student in a graduate course with a beowulf crib uh has any idea until you look it up in the index but the original hearers probably had all of that they knew uh in their Mm -hmm. collective memory
1: Mm -hmm. they came to that story with with that knowledge didn't they because they had been hearing those stories all their lives
0: yeah
2: And what Tolkien was trying to do was to create that very concept that, of course, you've been hearing these stories all your lives. And the genius Mm -hmm. is that the hobbits hadn't. The hobbits are really ignorant. They don't leave. Very sheltered. Uh, They don't have maps that go beyond their borders. Um, They're very insular, very parochial. And so they're the perfect people for Tolkien to send out into the big wide world, and have to learn
0: mm-hmm. about it. That is, that's an excellent yeah. insight. I, I know we've talked about Sean the the parochial nature of hobbits before, mm-hmm. and how, and even within the hobbit community, how they view somebody as you know an outsider because they live you know on the other side of the river. I mean, oh yeah, yeah, those you know, Bucklanders, just, those folks are weird oh, because they yeah. live all the way over there, uh, and 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 yet their world is so small in comparison to the rest of Middle Earth. Mm-hmm. But yeah, to use that as the perfect vehicle for for demonstrating that concept and for bringing them into this world, this large world with a deep, long history.
2: Well, it's a good job they sent Sam and not Ted Sandyman.
1: Oh goodness, yes, <laughs> right,
0: yeah, <laughs> yeah. Ted Sandyman wouldn't wouldn't have lasted very yeah. long, I suspect. Can, you, yeah, can you, you imagine? It's very sending... good choice. Yeah, <laughs> oh, you
1: know goodness. that's that's actually um, that's a really good segue into my next question. Um, which is uh, just to kind of let our listeners know that Splintered Light is not entirely about the Silmarillion. Um, no. You do devote a few chapters at the end to Lord of the Rings and especially how this theme of separation and fragmentation that uh, spans the whole legendarium, really. Um, and also the contrast between light and dark, which you've alluded to already in this interview, how it sort of reaches its final play in the Third Age with you know hobbits, the, the smallest people, the smallest fragment, I believe you call uh, Frodo. So, we have just finished our read through of The Hobbit, and we've spent a lot of time talking about the ways in which Bilbo. Um, illustrates the contrast of opposites, the the toque versus Baggins, um, the archaic versus the modern, or at least the 19th century modern, you know, the Victorian or Edwardian.
2: <laughs> Very up to date.
1: <laughs> yeah. And and I think we'll probably be discussing this a lot more when we get to Lord of the Rings. But what is, yeah. what is it about hobbits, do you think, that makes them such a a window into some of these themes that were so important to Tolkien? Is it is it just because they're more like us, or, you know, or what is it that makes the hobbits illustrate that theme of fragmentation and, and those opposites so well?
2: Um, a lot of things. They are more like us. Um, they are little. They are overlooked. Uh, nobody had written about hobbits, so Tolkien is free to, to make them what he wants. Everybody has some kind of preconceived idea of elves or dwarves um, or even trolls. But, but nobody had a concept of hobbits before Tolkien came up with it, although the word did exist. Um, mm-hmm. And also, he makes them, I think, quite remarkably like the human community. They mm. are, as we've said, insular, parochial, ignorant, bigoted, opinionated, prejudiced, full of their own um, (laughs) uh, ideas and not particularly interested in anybody else's and very suspicious. (laughs) So they are perfect to encounter and feel the impact of um, the big wide world. And they get it first (laughs) with (laughs) Tom Bombadil.
0: Boy, they do, don't they? Because
2: (laughs) he takes them all the way back.
0: Right. Right.
2: To when the dark was fearless before Morgoth. Yeah. And that's a long way back and nobody knew it in 1956.
0: (laughs) Um, But their
2: (laughs) eyes are constantly being opened not just to the world but also to themselves Mm. Um, Hmm. so that they come away from oh all their adventures with... um, with some rather humbling new ideas or concepts of themselves. When Bilbo Baggins grabs the Arkenstone and says, mm-hmm. now I am a burglar mm-hmm. indeed, yeah. you realize that he's been playing all along.
1: Mm-hmm. Right.
2: He really didn't think he was a burglar, and he is.
1: He finally becomes a burglar. So
2: unmarried. there are moments that every small individual human being has to undergo and i hope that everybody does of self-realization of Mm self-knowledge of suddenly having a light thrown on yourself in a way that makes you see yourself differently and that's what light is for Wow. Mm -hmm. wow I don't know if I answered your question or not. I sort of got on a roll.
1: (laughs) I think you you did did very well because you made me start thinking about on fairy stories and the idea of the hobbits entering a secondary world. Um, I mean, we as the reader are entering a secondary world when we open the book. Yeah. But the hobbits the hobbits are entering a kind of secondary world uh, when they when they cross the borders of the Shire
0: and enter into this Middle Earth that they don't really understand. Yeah, beyond very enchanted, beyond the scope of their I'm not going to say, well, it it really is actually beyond the scope of their imagination even. I mean, that's, Mm -hmm. and and I think that's part of the point. You know, for us as readers, we're being taken into a world that is beyond what we might imagine.
2: Yes, and it's our own world.
0: Exactly. Mm -hmm. Right. That's exactly right.
2: And that that takes a while to realize, but you can Mm -hmm. loop it right back to the hobbits uh, who are, Mm -hmm. yes, going out into the big wide world. But at one point in the woods, um, just above Hobbiton, Frodo says to Gildor, can't a hobbit walk uh, from his own shire to Brie in peace? (laughs) And Gildor says, it's not your own shire. What do you think? Others were there before you and people will be there after you.
1: That's right. Right. Right.
2: You know, the... The book is full of insights like that, and I love
1: them. Yeah. yeah, there are so many nuggets. Oh, and and thinking of the Shire, and and now all of a sudden I'm thinking of the Shire as that little circle of light in *Beowulf*, mm. the monsters and the critics, and and the the big wide world as the as the darkness beyond it.
0: Yeah, and um, and how much the hobbits are going out into that.
1: Okay. Um,
0: Maybe with a little less self knowledge that you know, I think the heroes in <laughs> in that mythical. Yeah. world. They know I'm about to go out into this darkness and I'm going to be beaten because that's what happens. I don't know that the hobbits quite knew that, but you're, there's certainly some similarity yeah. there, isn't there? But it, uh, I don't
1: know if I have anything to say about it. I'm just thinking about it. It's, <laughs> it's, a, it's a clear picture in my head. His
2: phrase about the little circle of light is just so spot on and so yeah, vivid mm-hmm. and at the same time, mm-hmm. so very quiet. But you know what you've yeah. got to mm-hmm. keep in mind? The ring is in the Shire. Mm. So it ain't all light.
1: No. Right.
2: Right at uh, the there very is that part darkness of it, there. uh is this very dark yeah. principle and mm-hmm. they don't know it.
0: No. Well, they don't know a lot of things. That's <laughs> Right, that's <laughs> we true. We find right. that to be the case for the Hobbits. Their their lack of knowledge, willing or otherwise, but uh yeah. But once again, that interplay of those opposites really,
1: again, as you said a moment ago, Doctor Flieger, and as you say in the in the book, uh, Splintered Light, how the light and the dark define each other, and mm, and these yes. contrasts throughout the legendarium define each other: fate and free will, uh-huh. um, hope Boy, and despair. I can't remember we've some spent of the so other much you time on those, haven't we? <laughs> we we have, we really have. Well, and I mean, even
0: in the Hobbit, the smaller, more obvious themes like comfort and discomfort. You know that that yeah, we see in yeah. Hobbit, we see Bilbo in those moments that are where he's craving comfort because he's in a moment that's highly uncomfortable. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Or the Tukish versus Bagginsy. Yeah, the Tuk-Baggins you know? conflict. And yeah. how, much,
1: how much time and uh, ink did we spend on Turin-Turinbar and oh. <laughs> Freight and Free Will,
0: you know?
2: Oh, what a, what a character. I love him.
0: <laughs> yes. Yes. I mean, three episodes in seven hours, and yet we're still planning on doing The Children of Hurin separately when we complete The Lord of the Rings at some point.
2: Oh, wonderful. Yeah. you got to let me know when you do. I want to listen.
0: Probably right. about five years from now, I think. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're, we're just looking at how long the Lord of the Rings is going to take us. We, uh, we did some math, and I won't bore you or our listeners with all the details, but our current pace was something like about seven and a half pages per hour of discussion just for The Hobbit. Uh, the Silmarillion was probably a little bit slower than that, and I figure the Lord of the Rings will probably be closer to the Silmarillion pace than the Hobbit pace. That puts us at probably, what did we figure, Sean, about? We're probably talking about 250 episodes. That's about five years before we'll be done with the Lord of the Rings. Yep. Good luck. So it's uh, yeah. Thank you. We'll need it. Thank you. Thank
1: you. <laughs> oh goodness. And by the time we're done with that, we'll be so good at podcasting, and we're going to want to go back and do the Silmarillion again.
0: Seriously, I, I I have listened to some of those older episodes, and they're they're interesting. But I do wish that I don't know somehow. I wish we tackled a year of experience before we'd done it. But how could you do that? You got to start somewhere. Yeah. Well, Sean, I think you said you had a a a follow up question on that, right? It it wasn't in our notes initially, but I want to make sure you get a chance to ask it.
1: Oh, you know, it was it was really just about the the interplay of the opposites. um, Oh, okay. The the light and the darkness, fate
0: and free will. So I think we've talked about it. Okay. Boy, fate and free will. Yeah, there's another there's (laughs) another one, and some great great inks spilled on that in Splintered Light as well, as I recall. So, in addition to your own books and essays, Doctor Fliger, you've uh, edited some critical editions of Tolkien's own works. You recently the story of Kulervo, and the lay of I still think I'm going to mispronounce this every time, but I think I manage it. Outru and Etruon. You
2: did
0: it right. Yay! I don't always get those things right, but it's a beautiful language. I want to get it right. Uh, Now, these are, of course, both early, very early, in one case, uh, writings of Tolkien's that represent early takes on themes that he would tackle later on in his more popular works. What advice would you give to someone who wants to read those works for further insight into the legendarium works, The Silmarillion, The Lord of the Rings? What should they keep in mind? And is there anything that they should be careful of in using those works to understand the legendarium?
2: Um, wow. Well, no. Uh, just read them.
0: There you uh, go. It,
2: it, <laughs> you, you don't need to keep Tolkien in mind when you read Altruan and et or the story of Cullervo because you cannot possibly not think about the other things of his that you have read uh, and how these might um, might weave themselves into the larger tapestry. So just, just read okay. them, enjoy them. Um, I think they're both really, really interesting for the dark qualities yeah. that mm-hmm. they bring to this very young man because these are the earliest... Um, well, especially with the story of Cullervo yeah. sometime between 1912 and 1916.
0: Um, very young a man. A very yeah. young right.
2: man. And he is so powerfully drawn to this terrible story
0: mm-hmm.
2: of this angry, resentful, misfit uh, who doesn't like anybody and hates the world. and And you think, where? where is this coming from okay it's coming from kalevala which is finnish mythology so it's Mm pre-existing in a way tolkien is adapting the story but why this one out of all the stories that that mythology is crammed with something drew him. yeah why is
1: that the one that resonated angry
2: young man
1: yeah and at the same time, that was the that was the young man who wrote the you know the first version of um, oh I can't remember the Erentree? name of the poem now but the or, uh, yeah, uh, the, the voyage of Arendelle, the Evening the one star, that would become Errantry the, 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 but, yeah. but yeah the, the, the uh-huh. predecessor to it well
2: there you yeah. go and it's the same binary that we've been talking about yeah light yeah and dark. right
0: that same set of antitheses yeah right wow that's fascinating I mean I suppose you could chalk some of that up to typical teenage angst but I, I
2: t- well sure it is typical teenage angst but not Many teenagers manage to achieve something like the story of Cooler. No,
0: that is something certainly like Coolervo for certain. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I mean, Sean, if they found what you wrote when you were, you know, fourteen, it wouldn't have oh, looked right. like that. No, it wouldn't. <laughs>
2: no, it would not be. But you could compare. You could compare Cullervo, I'm not suggesting that you want to go out and do this right away. To Holden Caulfield, who's mm. also very mm. angry, uh, mm-hmm. who also feels the world doesn't understand him. And he mm-hmm. doesn't understand the world. Uh, and J.D. Salinger mm. uh, was a man who suffered from post-traumatic stress. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you can find a lot of that in uh, in The Catcher in the Rye. Yeah.
1: Yeah, you can. That's true. I think one of the things that we talk about a lot on this podcast, uh, going back to uh, Tolkien's um, allegory of the bones and the soup or i guess dissents allegory yeah. technically but his totally adaptation that, for his own, allegory, yeah his right. adaptation for his use but um we talk about the fact that it's you know it's it's fun to look at the bones we love looking at the bones but what's always most interesting to us is what makes it different uh-huh. and so hmm. it's it's seeing those yeah. changes between um the angry young man of coolervo um written by an angry young man and then you take something like the children of hurin which is an angry young man written by an older wiser man and and that's it's so fascinating to see how tolkien grows in his perception of that character Oh, could
2: you tell me some more about that that's really interesting
1: (laughs) you're (laughs) on the spot sean (laughs) 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 i'm wishing i hadn't said anything now no i feel i feel that um I don't know. I feel that uh Tolkien's later version of Turin, he's he's viewing Turin later on with a bit more um I don't know if judgment is the right word, but I think he's definitely sort of maybe. Um,
2: perspective. Maybe
1: discernment. He's yeah, yeah perspective. perspective. He's he's viewing he's viewing Turin's um anger and his bad decisions um from some distance. Mm-hmm. And and that distance kind of helps us keep it in perspective. Whereas with Coolervo, um, I felt like I was just right there with wow. him, and um, it was a it was a much harder, much more painful story to read, mm-hmm. um, even as fragmentary as it was. Yeah, I don't know if that makes any sense, but
2: <laughs> I think it makes excellent sense. Yeah.
0: And now you know why I asked Sean to join the
2: podcasters. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh goodness, I do try. No, you do. Um, that was really good. I, I, same kind of thing that we talked about actually a little bit in when we did Children of Húrin. And we compared Coulervaux a little bit and we compared the the early drafts of of Turin and the, the novel version, you know, which was, of course, adapted from the Narn and all these other sources. But, uh, you know, kind of seeing that development of the way the character of Turin uh, was shaped. Mm-hmm. I think, Sean, you've got the next question, don't you?
1: I think I think I do. So we've been talking about early Tolkien, his first yeah. major work. Uh, now I want to go straight to the other book end of his career and talk about his last major work, because not only did you edit Cullervaux and Outruin and Troon, but you also did a critical edition of Smith of Wooten Major. And, uh, Dr. Flieger, you've written a lot about Smith. Um, I've read, uh, as much of it as I could, uh, because I love Smith. It's, yeah. it's my favorite non-legendarium story. Um, but you've, uh, there's a couple of things that I, that I think are interesting that you've said, um. Not only have you argued against uh, the idea of an allegorical interpretation, which another noted Tolkien scholar has put forth,
0: <laughs> who will be appearing um, on this show, uh, who will be on three. this show soon,
1: <laughs> and uh, and we've read that article, um, that point counterpoint yep. article, which was great, but we've also uh, you've also offered the idea that Smith is, uh, uh, I think your words were, a realization of the theoretical concept presented in on fairy stories, mm-hmm. so. I I think just sort of echoing Alan's question about the early works, what advice do you have for somebody who's wanting to find insight into the legendarium from reading Smith of Wooten Major? And Mm. is there anything we should be careful about there? Or uh, is it once again, uh, no, just read it and enjoy it and, you know. Well,
2: first of all, for sure, read it and enjoy it. Um, I don't think you should have to be careful. I don't know what you'd be careful of. in many ways it is Tolkien's most extreme statement of the very important concept to him of fairy, of, yeah. of the mm-hmm. other world. Uh, he just he just puts it out there and says, okay, take it or leave it. Mm-hmm. And Smith has to take it and leave it. Uh, but it's mm. uncompromising it doesn't explain no uh, it doesn't condescend, it doesn't sympathize. Uh, it just is and it's beautiful and dangerous and tough mm-hmm. and uh, and in a sense, I can't say inaccessible because Smith goes there but true. I'm trying to think of a word. Inapproachable in a way mm. uh, because you can't get hold mm. of
0: it.
1: Right. Yeah. He has it he has access to it for a time. He has that passport. I think you called it the star the, star. the, the passport yes. to ferry. And he's he's able to to go there for a time and he Right. He seems to travel freely. He doesn't have the he doesn't seem to have the difficulty that somebody like an arendil has or anybody in the legendarium of, of crossing you know, crossing yeah, on a straight road. crossing into ferry.
2: No, there's there's no geography, and there's mm-hmm. no um, there's no special way to get to ferry. I mean, in the Lord of the Rings, the hobbits have to go uh, down a tunnel through a gate in a forest. You know, just one transition yeah. mm-hmm. after another, crossing water, going underground into the underworld. And in Smith of Wooten Major, he kind of just chucks all that aside and says, Mm -hmm. Smith goes into fairy and he's gone. You never know for how long, Mm -hmm. whether it's a day, a week, a year. He doesn't know. And it's it's Tolkien's, I think, last and most honest effort to describe something that was probably indescribable, Mm. and Mm. that is the altered state that the deep experience of imagination can produce in the fairy story Mm -hmm. essay he calls it fairy and drama
1: yeah yes
2: uh and he says if you've been in a fairy and drama you will know it uh, because the potion is Mm -hmm. too strong and you you believe that it's real it's very very um dangerous to read biography into what people write, especially about themselves, but I kind of have the feeling that Tolkien knew what he was talking about. Mm-hmm. Uh, that he'd been there. Yeah.
0: That he'd felt yeah. that that reality of.
2: And that and that he realized that um, that he had to come home.
0: Hmm.
1: He had yeah. to leave it behind at some point. Yeah, he. There was that friend of his who said, "What was the quote that one of his friends said to him? You really broke through, didn't you?" Oh, oh yeah. um
2: That's a uh, great one. Simone Darden.
0: Yeah, right.
2: She was one of his students, one of his graduate students. Yeah, you broke through. You broke through the veil.
0: Broke through and the veil. Got to that's the it.
2: other yeah. side. Ooh, <laughs> you know that. Uh, mm. That's about as far out as yeah. uh, as you <laughs> could so get cool. if you take it seriously. And she says yeah. that he readily admitted it. Yes. Yeah. But in fairy and drama, in the in the fairy story essay, he says you are in a dream that some other mind is weaving.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to leave that alone. And that's a tough concept in that essay because because he, yeah. he he doesn't he doesn't really explain that concept very much in the essay. No. But I think you've done no. a, a really good job in. Um, some of your essays, I think, in the in the new book and in some of your other writings to, to really get to the heart of what that fairy and drama is.
2: As much as I can, I think it's finally uh, unapproachable. Yeah. I probably would know it when I saw it.
0: There you go. It, it's maybe undefinable in a way that you couldn't define it to somebody who hadn't also experienced it.
2: But you know, mm-hmm. a lot of people could have experienced something like it. I don't know about the two of you, but anybody who's done any kind of writing for pleasure, um, Mm -hmm. writing of fiction, has had the experience of having the story take on a life of its own.
0: Yeah. Um, Yeah.
2: And then you just follow where it goes and you're really hanging out with all these neat people Mm -hmm. Uh, who you didn't know you knew, and letting them take you where they will. That's the function of imagination, but it doesn't feel like it. It feels like you are Mm -hmm. in a dream that some other mind is weaving.
1: Yeah, right. And that's the beauty of being able to to write it down and share it with somebody, and and share all these people and all this imagination with others. Just as I agree, again, I'm thinking of Smith and the way he bring he comes back and he sings while he works. After yeah. I agree,
0: Ferry. and he yeah. makes
2: beautiful things.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes,
0: yes, he does. Well, I think we probably have a, a few more questions. You've done such a great job of. Of staying on point, you know, (laughs) we're so used to (laughs) Corey Olson and Professor Drought, who, you know, like us, digress. (laughs) They have
2: broader minds.
0: This has been great. We've gotten through a lot of questions. It's been great. We have. Um, Many of our listeners know you as one of the co-editors of the journal Tolkien Studies, along with uh, Michael Drought and and now David Bratman, though previously uh, Douglas Anderson. We had Professor Drought on the show a few months back and talked to him a little bit about how the journal came into existence. Can you tell us or our listeners a little bit about how you got involved with it and, and kind of what um, maybe what the future is for, for Tolkien Studies going forward?
2: Well, I can certainly tell you how I got involved because it's very simple. I was invited by Mike Drought <laughs> well, and Doug answer. Anderson, and I jumped at the chance.
0: Of course.
2: Uh, they thought it was time for a journal on Tolkien Studies. I couldn't have agreed more. And uh, the mm-hmm. idea that I would get to work with them in the in the startup of something like that was just too good to pass up.
1: Mm-hmm. What's that been like? What do you feel about the about the the world of Tolkien studies today? As you're as you're you know reading these papers and and reading about some of the different research and some of the different ideas that are out there.
2: Well, I think we've found our. I don't know how to put this without. Sounding like it's going to be blowing our own horn. But I think we've found a whole world of scholarly, informed, exciting people out there. Uh, And Mm. I hope that we've given them a venue for the things they want to say, because I think we've published some terrific stuff. Mm -hmm. You do. I'm very proud of it.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: And we didn't, we hoped that those people were there, but we didn't know them all. And the fact that they, were there, that they came forward, that they produced stuff, that they wrote things that astonished us, uh, that we'd never thought Mm of, uh, was one of the most exhilarating experiences I've ever had. And I think that Doug Mm -hmm. would say the same thing, Mike would say the same thing, David would say the same thing.
0: Very good.
1: There seems there seems to be a sense from the from the folks we've talked to, wouldn't you say, Alan? Um, you mm-hmm. know, talking to Professor Drought or, or sure. Professor Olson, there there's a there's an interesting tone to Tolkien scholarship that's a little different from other types of academic scholarship. Oh yeah, because it's yeah,
0: it's not just scholarly, but it's also nerdy <laughs> or geeky. <laughs> yeah, where where that precision matters. I think Professor Drought talked about that in detail about the uh, and, and how you you can't just be this, you know. Having a great critical analysis of something, you have to get the Tolkien part right. <laughs> you know, you yes. can't. Right? There's a there's a nerd focus, and I mean that in the in the most complimentary way possible. Oh, it's, it's absolutely! It's absolutely a compliment when we say it. Um, yeah, th- th- you got to be right. <laughs> yeah, and, and then you can have your analysis. But yeah, it's uh, we've it's, even experienced that as well, very you know, much so. Very we make no so. pretensions
1: oh. to knowing what we're talking about. No. But- at the same time, when we do say, uh, we, we will be called on it if we're if we say yeah. something that's factually. And we we get wrong. called on things. That's
2: very healthy, I think, to have that yeah. community out yeah. there. Oh, very. And and know that you're going to be called on things,
0: and mm-hmm. know that you absolutely got to
2: get it right. Yeah, mm-hmm. we can't
0: get away with just making stuff up as we go, which sometimes <laughs> is what we do. Right? We, we have, do we, sometimes. We have our outlines and we stick to them, but you know sometimes we'll go off on a tangent and then i'll I'll say something that yeah wait a minute that had no no basis in reality yeah. whatsoever. And, and, and suddenly
1: <laughs> we find ourselves talking about some other incident that happened in the second age where it's really hard to find anything and you right right bring something up and <laughs> yeah. i don't know where that is i don't have my books uh, yeah i know That's i don't have thing all we're... my books right here do
2: you guys read all those books have you read clear through the history of middle earth
1: i believe sean you have I have not. No, you have not. Okay. I have not all the way through. No, I, I've started. I, I got as far as I as about uh, the fifth one uh, through most of the Lost Road, but I have not read the the Lord of the Rings ones all the way through. Those are the ones um, I did. Oh, read.
2: they're fascinating.
1: Yes. And then the the later ones, you know, when he goes back to the Silmarillion, I've I think I've probably read just about everything in there, just piecemeal.
0: We well, yeah, but, we've read a lot piecemeal because as we went through the Silmarillion, we were pulling things uh, from. You know, laws and customs of the Eldar uh-huh. was one of our go-tos. Uh-huh. I remember we spent probably twenty minutes on a sidebar about the statute of Finway, <laughs> Finway and the You know, yeah, <laughs> uh, and and you know that's fun stuff. But yeah. I think we'll probably. I, I know I'm going to give myself a refresher on the history of the Lord of the Rings before we the get into the history
2: of the Lord of the Rings is fascinating, um, deeply revealing, if revelation mm, can yes. be deep, um,
1: <laughs>
2: because. For me, as as a sort of of fledgling writer of fiction, it was comforting to know how many times he got it wrong before he got yes. it right.
1: Yeah, isn't how it? How many
2: times he had to say, "This is not working. Go back to the beginning. Mm-hmm. Start all yeah. over again. Say no. He, of course, he wouldn't get married. Uh, <laughs> and no, this is not yeah, his yeah. name. I mean, how could he go? all the way through the first draft of the Lord of the Rings, calling Strider Trotter. Yeah,
1: that's what I was Trotter. Trotter. <laughs> a brown, yeah. And, and to start with a brown-faced hobbit named, named Trotter. Trotter.
2: Uh, uh. Well, I think I found out why, by the way.
1: Oh.
2: oh. Uh, I stumbled across the name Trotter in a completely different reference, and it opened my eyes. Oh.
0: Hmm. Very interesting. Uh,
2: I always thought of Trotter as kind of cute. I think of pigs trotting around, sheep trotting around,
0: yeah.
1: little mm-hmm. kids yeah. trotting yeah.
2: around. Where a strider, really, you know, moves right. out. He
1: long shanks, long, shanks, long legs, right. with a purpose.
2: But um, Trotter is one of the surnames of the English-Scottish border in the turbulent 16th century when they were oh. at each other's throats and rustling cattle yeah. and burning. Barnes and uh, abducting wow. people. Uh, and most of the names are, are really familiar in a way. The, the Nixons, the Grahams, uh, a lot mm. of American names that you probably know pretty well. Yeah. Mm. But Trotter mm-hmm. is one of the surnames. Hmm. And that huh. suggested well. to me that Tolkien might have been Thinking of a completely different background for this character—that he was kind of a guerrilla hmm. fighter, that he was a raider, mm-hmm. that he uh, he operated outside society in a way. Right, uh, wow. and I I had never thought of the name Trotter in in huh. those terms. It was very humbling. Wow, that's fascinating. It that does
0: cast a different light There's on. There's a
2: terrific there? book. Um, called The Steel Bonnets by a man named MacDonald. I'm pretty sure it's MacDonald, mm-hmm. which is a history of uh, of those years along the English-Scottish border. Uh, and the end papers had a map, and that's where I found the name Trotter.
0: Wow. Wow. And yes, it is uh, George MacDonald Fraser is the author of Good The Steel you. Bonnets, yeah. the story of Have the you read it? Anglo-Scottish border. Uh, I've not oh. read it. I'm I'm looking it up because I wanted to make sure our our readers uh, would would get a chance. But thank you. For I, I love line. history, and this is a time of history that fascinates me. So I'll probably be putting that on my uh, relatively short to you know to read it's list. It's
2: great. It's entirely readable. It's uh, it's fascinating. <laughs> uh, it's it's full of, yeah, of awesome. bloody encounters and double dealing <laughs> well, of and course. double yeah, crossing and all kinds of good yeah. stuff.
1: Sounds fun. It's uh, so. It's just always so amazing to see the sources that Tolkien worked yeah. with. Well, now really I'm not is. saying and, and that
2: I know this was a source.
0: No, sure. First of sure. all, The right, Steel right. Bonnets
2: was written after he died. Well, right. Um. Okay, but right. Yeah. the history that it talks about was one right. that I think any educated Englishman would have been right. familiar with.
0: Right. Certainly. Right. Very
1: That's just great.
0: Yeah. Now, I'm really
1: that's that <laughs> another book to add that's very cool <laughs> along with rereading the entire history of middle earth and going
0: well front to back at least time. the at least the middle volumes there that are doing with the history oh, of the Lord of the rings oh come
2: on do do um sauron defeated
0: <laughs> oh sauron i
1: i want to read that one all the way through actually if yeah. i can just give a little plug to your one of your other books a question of time i really want oh, to yeah. read through all of the notion club papers now
2: well yes you mm. haven't talked at all about the notion club papers
1: no, no, we, haven't. <laughs> it's, no, it's we have not. And it's a
2: wonderful sort of s- not a sidebar exactly, but um, uh, a different angle on Tolkien's
1: mm-hmm.
2: feigned history. I think it's fascinating. Yeah, it I'm, starts yeah. really with the book that you said you ended your reading with, which is the Lost Road.
0: The Lost Road. That's yeah. where he
2: first started talking or writing about time
1: travel.
0: Right. Right. Yeah. And we've, I think we've touched on it once or twice, just like mentioned it. Um, I think we, we've talked Sean, a little bit about some of the, of the places. I know we've talked about some
1: of the, the Adonaiq stuff that's in there. Right. You know, just right. with the linguistics of it. Um, oh,
0: I remember when it came yeah. up recently. It came up when we were having that discussion about uh, li- the ability to hear languages and understand them and how that w- would be genetically transferred. <laughs> oh, that's, that's right. That's, <laughs> that's right. Where it came up was the conversation about how did Bard understand. The, the, thrush. the language of the thrush, right. And genetic transmission of language seemed utterly ridiculous. But then the notion of having a language and, you know, embedded in your brain while you sleep, you know, that also works. It was, so, was why not? something that Tolkien played with, yeah.
2: He did more than play with it. He believed it.
0: Yeah. Yeah, he did.
2: He really did. Mm. Have you guys uh, run across an essay that he wrote? It's in a book called um, Angles and Britons on English and Welsh. Mm. He talks about... Mm. Uh, a native language as being not the one you grew up with, but the one you were born with.
0: Oh, that's right. Mm, I have read that. That is right. Yes. That's the right. You were born with, that's true. Yeah. So he, he so gets. He did
1: See, and we didn't even think about that
0: when we were discussing no, that. I can't believe I didn't <laughs> think of that when we were having that discussion about genetic transmission of language and how in the world does Bart understand thrush. But he, yeah. he
2: writes about it also. To Christopher in the letters, and to yeah. W. H. Auden. His letters to Auden are very interesting. Well, I think it was it
1: was in the Auden letter that he talks about having a. Is that where he talks about having a, a natural predilection for the uh, the West Midlands dialect?
2: Yes, and and isn't that where he says it's as good uh, a genetic marker as blood groups?
0: Oh right. Okay. Oh my goodness your your memory is astounding because i remember that now but of course as we're in the midst of that discussion in the hobbit i did not remember it
2: well check me you know i don't have the book yeah. in front of me but i'm it's in there somewhere. Well,
0: i think that's right I, that sounds right. i happen to be pulling up my ebook version now just to see uh, because that's the kind of person i am um, <laughs> that's but, what but, you
2: have in the electronic age you can't say anything anymore Somebody's <laughs> gonna pull out an iPhone and check. Somebody
1: this. can always prove you wrong or right, right yeah. so easily. Yeah, yep. we'll have to. We'll have
0: to find. They don't that. even
1: have to know. They can just search it.
0: Well, it, it, I will tell you this: well, that the I, I much prefer reading a book. Much prefer reading a book. Oh, absolutely. But for things yeah. like the letters, it is so handy uh, to have an electronic version to search for you know particular moments in the letters because. It, the index isn't particularly effective. Let's put it that way. So, no, um, even being able even to have the that search
2: with is, uh, with Hammond and Skull, which is much better than the original one,
0: much better. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, that would be an you know, electronic copy would be super helpful.
2: But to be able to yeah. do a word search, yeah, is electronic.
1: Because every once in a while, you remember the phrase yeah. that he was that he said, yeah. and you're trying to remember where was that phrase because he had such a way with words that that's what sticks in your head sometimes so you don't know how to look it up in the index.
0: Yeah, that's true.
2: How did you guys come to Tolkien?
0: Wow. Sean, do you want me to let you answer that <laughs> one first? Uh sure. Yeah, I um I
1: was uh I had been a fantasy fan and a mythology fan all my life. Um but um I I mean probably from early childhood. I read a lot of Greek mythology mm. and uh, a little bit of Norse mythology, read a lot of um so played Dungeons and Dragons, and of course. you know read a lot of that kind of fantasy. It was when I was a teenager. I think I was uh, fifteen or sixteen. I was reading a biography of my favorite band, my favorite rock band, um, and uh, there was a mention of the the story about Tolkien getting bored one day and writing in a hole in the ground, "There lived a Hobbit" <laughs> on a paper. <laughs> and I read that story, and I thought, "Wow, this is." Amazing. What what a what a cool act of creative rebellion to be bored at your job <laughs> yeah. and and write the first sentence of a story that kickstarts an entire world. Yeah. And and I didn't realize, of course, at the time that the, world had, the world had already been kickstarted.
0: Already. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
1: Right. But it was reading that in a completely unrelated book that made me say, I have to go out and read these books. And I did, and I I I dove wow. in and I've been there ever since. Yeah.
0: That's amazing. I I I started a little bit earlier, but I think I moved in a little bit slower. I was given a copy of, of, of an illustrated Hobbit. Uh, it was illustrated with the um, still frames from the animation of the Rankin and Bass uh, movie that had come out in 77, uh-huh. I think that was. I think I got the book for my 10th birthday, which would have, or no, it was Christmas. So it was late 1978. I got that book, uh, read The Hobbit, devoured it, loved it. Uh, and I don't know, though, that I knew about anything after that. You know, I didn't know the other things existed. Uh, right away, until I was able to talk to somebody about it. I think as a freshman in high school, so probably about three years later, uh, I, I was telling a friend about this story. Oh, you, you'd love this then! And so I picked up Fellowship of the. I picked up the, a, a box of the trilogy. I was, I'm sorry.
2: <laughs> Sometimes I slip. Bite your tongue.
0: <laughs> I know. I really I was like the oh, single no. book. Divided I will be into editing three. that. <laughs> I, I bought a. a, a Box set of three books, <laughs> and I read, and I read, and I read, and I devoured, and I read, and I couldn't stop reading. I would read it, and then I would reread it, and I just fell in love with the richness of the world, the um, mm-hmm. the fullness of it, the, the how everything just seemed so well realized, so brought into being. I was astounded at his masterful use of language. I think that's the thing that stuck with me mm-hmm. more than anything. I was a fairly sharp kid in high school. Uh, I was always felt like I was reading things that were ahead of what other people were reading. Kind of like you, Sean, you know, Greek mythology in high school, you know, that. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I knew I was a nerd for reading this, but hey, guess what? I knew I was already a nerd anyway, so it didn't matter. Right. Yeah. And I just fell in love with how rich the English language really was. And I just kept reading and of course read it every year. Uh, then I think I read mm-hmm. the Silmarillion for the first time when I was nineteen, and it just blew me away. I've, I've never really stopped. since. See, you were older than I, I was, was. A little was older. For the when Silmarillion. I had the Silmarillion, yeah.
1: And I'm glad I because was. because I read the Silmarillion
0: because it was. I think I don't know yeah. that I would have been ready for it at fourteen or fifteen. But oh, I read it and I didn't
1: understand yeah. it. I mean, I enjoyed it. Yeah. I I knew that there was there was a really there's a whole mythology there, and I really yeah. loved
0: uh, exploring it. But I, I didn't. It was I didn't Grasp a lot of it. It was rich. Yeah. I. Some of my favorite moments, and I can't wait for my kids, just like I know you feel, Sean, is, uh, is for them to discover this world. I mean, I've, I'm still in the middle of reading The Hobbit to my six-year-old son, uh, well, and my four-year-old daughter, but he's the one paying attention. Uh, and I, you know, we're, we're just about in Lake Town now, and he just absolutely asks the right questions. And I'm so jealous of him getting to experience this world for the first time. For the first time. That's such a memory.
2: Oh, that's lovely. And you're right. It's that first-timeness. Yeah. That yeah. that can only happen once.
0: You you wish you could go you back do. and recapture I really it. Do. I do. You really
2: do. Yeah, and and you can.
0: Yeah, yeah. I know nope. it's it, it is something you keep grasping at, and it just disappears because you always you always have those earlier memories, and it's impossible sure. to, to sure. forget and them. They're, yeah. and
2: they're rich. It's a it's a wonderful experience it to is. read it again.
0: Mm-hmm. But yes.
2: that that oh, moment. When, when it unfolds for the first time.
1: It is it is it is a totally different experience. Yes. Mm-hmm. What what makes up for the fact that you can't go back and have that first experience again is the fact that there's so much to read that you can always go back yeah. and you can always go find something new. Yes. That's so, true. I, I've still got some volumes of history of Middle mm-hmm. Earth to discover. Um, once I get through with those, there's always... Um, reading every single back issue of Vinyar Tengwar and Parma you know the
0: linguistic journals there's there 's so much so much stuff there there 's always something to dig deeper on for me i I actually like doing the um, experiencing that first time moment vicariously uh, when the when the films were said to be coming out my my wife had never read the books uh, she knew I loved them she knew about them, but she never read them. We sat down and did um, I had a, I got a second copy and so that she could read along while I read out loud the entire trilogy over a course of many, many weeks. Uh, and I never forget the tears streaming down her face when Gandalf fell in Moria. And, you know, in my heart, I'm like, I, I want to comfort her and tell her, don't worry, he's still alive. <laughs> but of course I didn't. I didn't want to ruin that well, moment for didn't. her. No way. Right. But I will tell you this, when uh, at the end of Two Towers, when Sam thinks Frodo is... Uh, Oh, no, I'm sorry. Just before the end of Two Towers, when Sam thinks Frodo's dead for a little bit before he realizes, oh, he was just poisoned. My wife stopped me and said, you have to tell me right now. I will not read this anymore if you don't (laughs) tell me. (laughs) So I did have to ruin that one. But there is something joyous. Only for a few pages, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To to live, to relive that first time moment vicariously through a new Mm -hmm. listener, a new reader. And I think we've gotten so many comments from people first-time readers of the Silmarillion. I don't think we're going to get too many first-time readers of the Lord of the Rings, but people who right. broke through finally and, and our podcast helped them. Man, that's been one of the highlights of the show, hasn't it been? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it really has. To get that How many vicarious... people got to,
1: yeah. fi- finally made it through the Silmarillion and finally saw the all
0: richness. this richness that we've yeah. been
1: talking about, that, all that there was there to find. Yeah. Um, Wonderful. And I'm glad we've had a chance to help some people with that. Yeah,
0: it's a real joy. It really is. Well, Sean, I think you've got one more question. I think we've got now one that, now more that question we've been for you, Dr. Flieger. <laughs> <laughs> um,
1: Dr. Flieger, I think we'll, we'll we'll try and close on this one. Um, and I think it's, it's a question that's on a lot of people's minds right now. Yeah. It seems like we're probably about to get a lot more Middle Earth in the media again. Yeah. There's this Amazon series that everybody's talking about. There's a, a biographical film about Tolkien himself that's in the works. Uh, probably more. I don't even know what else. Yeah. Do you think we can expect to see another surge of interest in Tolkien's work like we did back in 2001 or, with the Peter Jackson Or movies? will
0: we see it fizzle like we did, like after the, uh, <clears throat> the unspoken second set of movies? Hobbit movies.
2: <laughs> I think the work will endure. Yes. I don't know how the, the Amazon series will affect a, a reading public I think the films have, again, I'm trying to think of the right word. I'm actually trying to think of a polite word for how the films (laughs) have affected appreciation of the book, uh, because they have, um, they have entered into it.
0: They have. Yeah, it's true. There's no denying.
2: People now, many people read the book in light of. The films. Yeah. And that is bound to affect how you see, how your inner eye sees the book. Uh, you're going to yeah. see certain actors. You're mm-hmm. going to see um, Elijah Wood uh, mm-hmm. or Kate Blanchett.
0: Yeah. Is that yeah. right? Yeah, mm-hmm. I believe so. Right.
2: One of the smartest things a student ever said to me and believe me students have said some really smart things <laughs> i learn more from students than they learn from me uh, but right after the films came out we were talking about them i think it was just the first one um and we were talking about Gollum, and andy circus mm-hmm. and computer generated um oh, yeah. imagery yeah, CGI.
0: right uh, and mm-hmm.
2: how how that has sort of upped the ante for what you can do on screen. And Tolkien talks about that in the fairy stories, except he's talking about drama. Um, Right. But we talked about Gollum and one student, I said, how do you see Gollum now Mm. after the films? And one student said, I don't see Gollum. I never saw Gollum. I hear him. Mm. And I thought by gum That's yeah. it exactly hmm. because this is a whole tragic character caught in captured by his speech patterns.
1: Mm. Mm-hmm. Right.
2: Uh, so that the one thing you know about Gollum is the way he talks. Yeah. Mm-hmm. More than you know it about Theodon. Uh, about mm-hmm. Aragorn, who talks different from Strider.
0: Yes, he uh, does. Yeah, yeah. But,
2: but not in the way that you can immediately pick oh, up yeah. on this warped, mm-hmm. regressive, ancient, childish, yeah. infantile, mm-hmm. self-absorbed creature mm-hmm. who, who is I and we and mm-hmm. Smeagol and Gollum. And, and talks to himself uh, and is so clearly um, mm-hmm. of two minds. And Tolkien yeah, mm-hmm. never tells you that.
0: He doesn't need he to. He just
2: shows it to you.
0: Yep. Right.
2: And you hear Gollum and you know everything you need to know.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you hear the, the interplay of, I don't know if they're quite opposites, but they're, they're definitely two opposing fragments in Gollum and Smagel. Oh, oh
2: yeah. yeah. When he says, I... We, I, we, and he can't mm-hmm. make up his mind. Yeah. Um, it, it's pathetic.
0: Mm-hmm. It, it, yeah. In a literal sense, the most literal sense it is. Yeah. yeah. The, and we could do a whole nother episode on the impact of the films. That's for sure. That's one of the reasons why I made my <laughs> wife read the books with me before the movies came out is I did not want her to read the books eventually and always see those characters, those actors in those places and, and, Right. Um, yeah, and I'm glad that she did uh, because she had a, a much, much fuller experience. Of course. I... Well, we've talked about how it
1: even affects us sometimes. Oh, I mean, it does. Many can... times as we read those books before the movies came out. Yeah. But now, I mean, I, I see Ian McKellen frequently. Yeah. When I think I mean, of Gandalf, you
0: know. Thankfully, I didn't um, watch the Hobbit films enough, and so I don't, <laughs> I don't have yeah. a problem seeing Thorin as, as the Thorin that I've always seen him as. But it right. is harder for characters like Gandalf. Uh, maybe Aragorn to some extent. How about Frodo? Uh, there are a few others. Frodo, I've been able to 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 beat the large-eyed, doughy-eyed, you know, yeah,
1: uh, Mr. Wood. I've been I mean, able to I, kind
0: of get that out of my head.
1: <laughs> mainly just because Frodo in the books is written much older and wiser. And yeah, so you can. Yeah, you can there kind was more of, of a disconnect different.
0: in the first place for me between yeah. his portrayal and yeah. the book. And so it made it a little easier for me to kind of not picture him anymore. But it's a, a Gollum. I, I can only hear Andy Circus now. Every time I do the, you know, read the lines. Even uh, when we read the lines, it's very hard not to do, how do you an not, Andy Serkis yeah. voice. How do you not do it yeah. with a circus, you know, try to do an impression Have of Have you ever Serkis, heard but, Tolkien
2: yeah. read Gollum?
0: Yes. 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 The Tolkien Audio <laughs> yes. Collection. He's, I love that. Yes. It's wonderful. Wonderful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, um, I'm, I'm grateful for how many people have come to the books that might not otherwise have done so, but it, mm-hmm. the cost is pretty steep, you know, in terms of the experience and how it has, uh, impacted readers, um, both first time and long time, but that would be another episode, wouldn't it? <laughs> it, it would. And it is true that the book, the book remains,
1: as Tolkien said, inviolable. So yeah, yeah. It, it will endure. And, yeah. um but, but you're, was it inviolate? Yeah. I think it was inviolate. In and I
0: actually think it. it was a letter from the publisher to Tolkien. Cause you're, you're, you're thinking about the same letter I am where they were both going back and forth about.
1: Oh uh, yeah. Maybe so. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I can't remember. It was but there, there, definitely precisely. something
1: to the, yeah, definitely something to the effect of, you know, the book will always book will remain and in the violent. book will be there. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Good stuff. So, well, Dr. Flieger, thank you so much for joining us. I can't tell you how much we appreciate it. It has been such a pleasure. And the fact that you've been more generous with your time than our listeners know, because you were with us for (laughs) at least a half hour the other day. (laughs) We have uh, have truly enjoyed our conversation with you. And you have a standing invitation to join us again anytime. Just let us know if you have something you want to talk
2: about. I will surely (laughs) do that because I've had a really good time. I've enjoyed it. I think you're very good interrogators I like the questions
1: <laughs> good we, good. I'm glad we, we do to try we do. we do try and we thank you very much uh, as much as I hate to say it I think that does wrap it up for this episode well, we did it and yeah, we did <laughs> And it also wraps it up for season two of the Prancing Pony podcast, doesn't it, Alan?
0: That's right, folks. This is our last episode before we take a brief hiatus. Uh, We will be back in mid-August with episode 91 and an interview with Dr. Tom Shippey.
1: We'll be talking to him about the road to Middle Earth and J.R.R. Tolkien, author of the century, as well as a little bit of non-Tolkien medievalism in his newest book, Laughing Shall I Die? Lives and Deaths of the
0: Great Vikings. All that and the start of The Lord of the Rings after the break. I get to read more about Vikings. I love that. <laughs> but but while we're off, we will still be around on social media. Bartleman will still be bringing us the mail, maybe a little late. He does that. And most importantly, we'll still be working on several things related to the podcast, all with an eye towards making things even better in season three. Yeah, but that's going to give us a chance to prepare for the upcoming
1: season as thoroughly as we can. Sure. And we plan to do that after every season from here on out, because yeah. we've Got to keep it fresh and interesting. And that means sometimes even (laughs) Alan and I
0: need a break. Oh, well, yeah, you're right. Well, if you have any (laughs) questions about our hiatus or about season three or anything else along those lines, just let us know on social media or by emailing barlamin at com. And while we're not going to ask you for anything, if you'd like to see
1: how we're doing towards our Patreon goals, you can see them at patreon.com slash prancingponypod.
0: That's right. We've asked you for stuff all along and we're, we're taking, we're giving that a rest for a while. Uh, but we, we do want to give a very special shout out to our patrons at the Kear Dance Contribution Tier. Demay in Alaska, James in Virginia, Tamson in Minnesota, Don in Vancouver Island, and Emily in Texas. Thank you very much. Thank you all so much for your support and for the time you spend listening, participating, and making our podcast better. Well, and folks, that almost wraps it up for another episode of the Prancing Pony Podcast. As always, thank you very much for joining us. And while you're waiting for season three, we invite you to please check out the official library tab on our website, theprancingponypodcast.com. We have links to everything from inexpensive paperbacks, perfect for taking notes, to some really good stuff for your token collection, including some of the books we've discussed here today with Dr. Flieger.
1: And if you wouldn't mind heading over to iTunes for us and leaving a review, we'd really appreciate that. It helps us find new listeners, and that means Mm -hmm. more great questions for Barlamin, more discussion on social media, and all those
0: things that make the Prancing Pony Podcast community great. And thank you to those of you who have, by the way. Not only do we still read every one of them, but we are also featuring one a week on our social media networks on hashtag thankful Thursdays. Now make sure you never miss an episode of the show. Subscribe to the Prancing Pony podcast through iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app.
1: And thank you to all of those who become part of our social media circles. We set out to start a Tolkien conversation that everyone could join. And that's why we have the online common room on Facebook at the Prancing Pony podcast on Twitter, at Prancing Pony Pod, and on Instagram, at Prancing Pony Pod.
0: And one last thing, as always, don't forget to send your thoughts, comments, and, most of all, your stories from the Bodleian Libraries. I was going to say pictures, but they are not allowing that, are they? (laughs) Anyway, send them to Barlamin at theprancingponypodcast.com. We'll try to get them into our next episode. Folks, however much time we've had, hour and a half or so, still far too short a time to spend among such excellent and admirable listeners. But until next time, farewell, friends.